Good Wednesday morning. John Patrick is going to be talking about abortion. I am stateside and living in Idaho. And if you're watching the news, you've just seen that Roe versus Wade has been turned over. So today we're going to be talking about everything that comes along with that. I'm sure some of you guys are in conversations that are challenging, and hopefully this conversation is edifying and helpful to you. Well, good morning, folks. Um, this has been a long time coming. Uh, bad legislation can hang around for a long while. It's not the end of the road, of course, by any means. Um, most Christians, including myself for a long while, didn't want to talk about subject. Um, so I've watched the whole process from beginning to end. I, in fact, have on uh, my record, which one day will be judged, that I facilitated abortions when I was a young doctor under the command of others uh, for rubella babies. Uh, um, as you can see, not a young man. Uh, so when I started medicine, rubella, the rubella vaccine had not been invented. So every now and again, doing in ID in London, a woman would come in and say, I've got this rash, is it German measles, rubella? And I'd look at the rash and say, yeah, but there are many viruses that cause a similar rash, so let's take some blood today, some more in a week, and I'll see you after that, and we can talk about what's involved. The odds are that you don't have rubella, but we'll see. A week later, uh, usually you could reassure them, send them away, but every now and again, uh, someone would say, I have to say it is, and I presume the reason you came is that you're pregnant, and they said yes. And then, looking at the dates and working out the numbers, you could give them some estimate of what the risks were, and they could be high. And a rubella baby can have major defects in the development of the nervous system and in the heart. So it's not a diagnosis anyone enjoys receiving. And what we were taught to say, and what I did was, uh, I expect you'd like to start again, wouldn't you? And they, of course, said yes. I said, well, we can make that happen, if, if that's what you'd really like to do. And I don't remember anyone who didn't. There weren't many, of course. Um, and abortion at that time was strictly illegal in Britain, but it went on the standard OBGYN uh, operating list as a DNC, which is technically what it was. But it's also an abortion. Um, I was actually pleased when uh, medical abortions of that type were legalized and for things like rape uh, in common law, uh, long before we got round to the judges really getting involved. It was actually a Catholic gynecologist who just thought that a girl should not have to bear the consequences of rape. And he waited till he got a perfect case and then called the police and said, I've just done an abortion on a young woman, I want you to arrest me. And they said, no, no, we don't want to hear about it. And he said, no, I want you to arrest me, I want it to go to court. And of course he knew he wouldn't get convicted in front of a jury, and he wasn't. And uh, he was pleased, I was pleased. Both of us later became very upset about the consequences. He, regret, he was committed Catholic, but he, he did not see what was going to happen, neither did anyone else. And I didn't think about it. A few people did, including the guy that I chose to deliver our first uh, two babies. Um, a wonderful Christian guy who never got the job he should have had. He was very, very good. He, he had to do family practice with an interest in gynecology because 
nobody would appoint him because he wouldn't do abortions. And that if you appoint a gynecologist who doesn't do abortions, it means the rest have to do more. Uh, nobody li or very few people like doing them, and those that do ought to see a psychiatrist. Um, and uh, he never got the job he should have had. And I didn't think about it. I should have done. Not for 20 years or more. Uh, and then, at about the time God was getting at me in all sorts of ways, and I was about to begin this last career of my life, uh, doing apologetics and helping Christians to think about their faith. One afternoon, I, it was bugging me, and I, went, I told my lab, just carry on, don't, don't disturb me, I want to think this afternoon. And I sat down and I asked myself the question, can I actually think my way through to being pro-choice? I just accepted that's what all academic people were. And by the end of the afternoon, I knew that I couldn't. Um, I wasn't pleased. I asked Robert Spitzer, a lovely Jesuit, uh, if you want somebody who can really talk about these things, go and find his multiple websites. Um, and I explained what I'd done, what, what, the way I was thinking, and I said, now, pull it apart. You're a Jesuit, that's what you do. And he said, I don't think I can. I think that's exactly the right way to do it. You've got to do it. That's the last thing I wanted to hear. I said nothing. And of course, about the same time, my wife said, people are always complaining that you were within striking distance of them and they didn't know when you were giving lectures. And I can't know where everybody lives, but I can put your travels on, on a website, so I'm going to do that. And I laughed and said, nobody will go there. But of course they did. Uh, especially students who are bored in lectures, what do they do? They surf most of the time, sort of half listening to see if there's anything important. And uh, it wasn't long after that that I got a, uh, an email from Detroit, from Wayne State, and the students said, we see you're going to Ann Arbor, you have to go through Detroit from Ottawa, uh, will you talk to us first? And I said, well, if you'll take me to Ann Arbor, that will save them driving all the way to the airport. And they said, sure, we'll do that. So I said, what do you want me to talk about? And they said, we want you to do a midweek talk in the middle of the day on abortion. And I said, I don't do that. Um, they said, why? I said, no desire to be lynched in public. And uh, they said, but we've heard you speak, we think you could do it. I said, flattery will get you nowhere. Um, but, but they, then they said, we've prayed about it. And I had no answer to that, of course, because deep down I already knew I was going to have to do this. So I said, all right, as long as it's a lecture room with an escape hatch by the lectern, I'll do it. They said, that's okay. I said, you can have the car running afterwards, take me to Ann Arbor. Um, I didn't need to. The lecture ended in total silence, as it has done every time since. Now, this is an astonishing statistic, but... I've given this lecture all over the world, literally from Russia to Australia, to Oxford, to California, to all across America, including places like Madison and Detroit. Uh, very rarely in Ottawa. I've never been asked to do it in my own medical school, of course. Um, never. A, never an attack afterwards. Why? Um, well, I think most people don't frame the questions aright. And um, 
I spend my life saying the same thing time and time again. You must go back to the start. The liberals love it when you jump in three quarters of the way through an argument, but you've lost it by that point. So the way that I did it, did do it with students is very simple because um, usually I'm talking to uh, an audience that is mainly medical students in their first two years in medical school. So they've been there six weeks or a year and six weeks. Other people come as well, but they're the main audience. And so it makes it easy. I say to them, well, um, I haven't been here very long, but a few hours, but I want to ask you some general questions before we get into today's topic. And the first one is about trust. Um, how many, what percentage of your class do you trust? And we do a sort of straw poll very quickly. Now when I started it was around 50%. Now it's reached a stage where I've been in several medical schools where people have said to me, I don't actually trust anyone. You can't do medicine when you've reached that stage because no one can know everything. So what you do is you say, well, you've got something going on. I'm not sure what it is, but I think a colleague of mine is more likely to know what it is, and I'm interested to find out too. You need a referral network, and you can't refer people to doctors you don't trust, or at least you're in a very difficult situation if you're forced to do that. Um, but trust has been declining steeply now throughout my clinical lifetime. Uh, it's a fraction of what it was when I started. In fact, we didn't even think about it when I started. It was assumed as a doctor. Uh, and it was inculcated into you that your first duty to was, the, was to the patient, not your family. I mean, we used to joke the fourth baby was the senior registrar baby well, to get through to the point where you were a consultant and didn't have to do NICOR keep your, your wife pregnant and your marriage might stay intact. And it was that cynical. But at the level of not doing that, nobody would even think twice. That's what we were taught to. And you also knew there was a mortality rate to being a doctor. Um, because when I started, there were virtually there were only a few antibiotics. And I met people who'd had colleagues die uh, from septicemia and things like that. And I've had, uh, that's always been part of medicine. It's astonishing in COVID to watch how this kind of inbuilt courage has evaporated. So um, I said, well, that's interesting. I suppose those that you don't trust are not at this lecture. And they'd all nod. Yeah, I said, I thought so. So you live in a very different world to mine, and I would explain that a little bit. And then I'd say to them, so the rest of you, you do by and large trust one another, but I suspect not on this issue, right? And there would be nods around the audience, yeah. So here's the problem, isn't it? By and large, you've got friends that you trust, but on this issue, there is no consensus. There's a divide straight down the class. And the people who are pro-life are somewhat frightened to say anything because they tend to get called bigots. But this is a major problem, isn't it, intellectually? What on earth is going on that you can be in agreement about who the decent people are and then you can't agree on an absolutely central issue of the nature of human life? Um, so the first thing to do is to recognize that neither side can prove their starting assumption 
what would you need to believe in order to justify taking a human life? Look, let's not waste any time in a class like this. You've done some embryology. You know that an individual human life starts at conception. No serious thinking person denies that. Uh, so some of you think there are other things that are more important than that and are willing to kill an unborn uh, human. And some of you think it's so important you wouldn't do that. Now, what makes that difference in your mindset? I think it has to be whether you believe in a God who will judge you for that behavior afterwards or not. But neither of you can prove either the statement that there is a God and I can prove it. No, you can't. There is no God and I can prove it. No, you can't. So both sides are acting on faith. That's why Wittgenstein said ethics is the condition of man, something that you believe, something that takes charge. It's not derivable from logic. It's, it comes from the tradition we inhabit in one form or another, and it, the commonalities around the world. But everybody's arguments have a starting proposition, and in the moral area, it's either I believe in some sort of God or I don't. So what I hope I've done by this stage, before we've got to the real topic, is to make the word bigot unacceptable to any of you in this discussion. Because a bigot is by definition someone who will not conceive of the possibility that they may be wrong. Now, that would make this, this school a much more peaceable place. Do you agree that the argument so far is solid? The answer, of course, is yes. Now, I say, you can look at this uh, in practical terms. In, in Canada, it's very simple. I want you to imagine that you're watching a bedside with Mother Teresa and Henry Morgenthaler and a pregnant woman who wants an abortion. Now, Henry Morgenthaler, was now dead, was a Jewish guy who lost several members of his family in the Holocaust. After that, he did not believe in a God of love. But he did inhabit the Jewish story, particularly of the, the liberal end of the spectrum, and he was a, a feminist in that sense. And he did not think women should be trapped by their biology. So he started doing abortions uh, openly, and he was in court at various times, but he, he never went to prison for it. In the end, of course, it was not legalized, but not it was made not illegal. Um, which is uh, not quite the same thing. They, they refused to touch it, basically. And he got the Order of Canada, amazingly, uh, for his uh, contributions to the feminist cause. Now, they both are looking at a woman, and they will both acknowledge that there are two lives here. Henry Morgan says two lives, one of which is unselfconscious, and the other is self-conscious. And his ethics, because he doesn't believe in God, are the ethics of net happiness, a rather crass way of putting it, but that's effectively what they do, is say, what will make the world a happier place? Well, the unselfconscious, absurd being, ultimately nobody has any meaning for the, the, the atheist, that when it's over, it's over. So an unselfconscious, absurd being versus a self-conscious, absurd being, who will be even more absurd and sad after if we don't do this, that's a no-brainer, so he does abortions. On the other side is, is Mother Teresa, who sees a woman who is putting her soul in jeopardy and will pay for her choice for the rest of her life and perhaps in eternity. 
Now, if that's what you believe, what's the right thing to do now? The exact opposite. But both are rational. We have no disagreement about rationality. We have a disagreement about premises. And we need to think about that. Now, what I was sucked into being pro-choice because of the consequences of rubella babies. I was already, strictly speaking, a utilitarian, net happiness type argument I'd accepted without it ever being actually laid out for me. So when the woman had had the abortion, she could start again. I hope she did, and I'm sure in most cases they did. Uh, when it was legalized, uh, the feminists who persuaded the first people to have abortions were somewhat surprised when some of the women came back and said, you told me it's trivial. It's not even like having, it's less than having your wisdom teeth out. But they said, but I feel, note the, the change. No, there's no thought at this point. I feel as though I have killed my baby. Now they had no answer to that. You can't tell people what to do with their feelings. You can help them to think their way through it, but if she feels that, you've got to respect it in some sense. Now, a woman called Annette, and I can't remember now whether it's Bayer or Meyer, but she was a philosopher, and she worked out how to get round this brilliant piece of casuistry, really. She said, what we need to do is to pull apart the idea of a human being and a human person. Now, no smart pro-choice person will argue, me, argue with me for a moment about life begin, beginning with conception. They're still at the silly stage when they're willing to do that, because the biology is undeniable. So, Annette was smart, she said, give them that. Just push it aside quickly. So yes, of course, it, it, it's got a human, unique human DNA. Uh, if they push it that far, accept it quickly so that nobody notices. But say, what we're really concerned is human persons. And you cannot reduce them to their DNA, and that's true. But you see what a, what a subtle change has occurred. All the discussions about personhood, that's not an accident. Now, most of the definitions of persons are functional and subjective. You become a person when? Then for the, a short talk like this one, which will probably be too long and you'll have to cut it up into bits, um, the easiest one is you become a person when you're capable of relationship. That's interesting. I'm waiting for the day when a, a woman murders her abusive husband when he's drunk and she can argue in court that he wasn't a person at the time and she will win. Um, we've already had the, uh, the incredible phenomenon of the contradictions that pop up in, in London some years ago. There were almost identical accidents where a woman, a pregnant woman was hit by a taxi and in one case uh, the woman uh, the baby died in utero and in the other case the baby died after delivery when the baby died in utero nothing happened because it was an abortion it was not illegal when the, the baby died afterwards it, it was manslaughter um, these kinds of freakish events are around and if you go looking for them you can find they don't persuade anyone what persuades them slowly is their whole argument um, 
this is a, a huge change. Um, I didn't see it happening. I, I remember one of the steps on the way when I was talking to Peter Kreeft, who we've become friends over the years, and he'd just given a lecture in uh, in Boston, uh, pointing out that once you accept abortion, euthanasia, uh, infanticide, and euthanasia are inevitable, but infanticide, and he, he explained that uh, that birth is a totally arbitrary moment in development and some children will never develop beyond the stage they come out of the uterus at and you can certainly say uh, they're never going to be persons they're never going to relate to anyone else in any really serious way so infanticide is going to be legalized and afterwards he said two young women came up and said thank you professor cray for the clarity of your lecture we were worried about infanticide now we see it's inevitable and necessary and euthanasia and the killing of the handicapped. These are all not, it's not nastiness, it's just pure logic working itself out. As Jay Budrzeszewski puts it, we are logical but slowly. That our middle aged brethren, our brethren from the middle ages, they would have got there quicker because they, they were logical and they taught logic in a serious fashion, which we don't do anymore. We only teach mathematical logic now because classical logic is too frightening, so they don't teach it to the children, and they remain children into their thirties because they haven't been educated. So um, I was, well, as I started thinking my way through this and realised what had happened to me, and then saw what the response was, uh, I had to go on. So I would say to them, "Look, no one who has seen." A, a, a young woman die of septicemia because of a botched abortion ever wants to see that again ever it is a horrible way to die with acute renal failure usually and septicemia now it's never near the numbers that were said but as Nathanson the, the founder of the uh, abortion movement in America said we made those numbers up and no investigative journalist ever checked and the coat hanger of course is a wonderful symbol but you push that into your cervix and you'll perforate your cervix and you'll be dead of septicemia for, because of the coat hanger not because of the abortion uh, nobody used that it's just not possible uh, but it's a wonderful symbol and we, we buy into symbols so I don't want abortion to be illegal for people who do not believe in God because it's rational for them I want them to understand what they're doing I would like them to be honest and say yes we are killing human life I think that would stop some of them doing it they mustn't be allowed for their own health to think that it's a trivial thing it's not they will never forget it so they need to realize why they're doing it in Japan they have little shrines by the, uh, for the women who've had an abortion because they, they had no contraceptives there for a long while so they had an abortion rate nearly 10 times the rest of the world. And these little strands of women basically asking their departed babies for forgiveness and that's one way to go I mean because there is that, that problem there we'll, we'll come back to this later on but so I, I would want if abortion is going to be done I want it to be done properly I don't want backstreet abortions, especially since in a secular society it's perfectly rational. It's not a right, it's a privilege that we are willing to go that far. Um, 
a lot of people would disagree with that. They're, they're more hardline than I am on that. But, but I, I, I think that that we have a duty to respect one another, and but to point out what the consequences will be. Jesus didn't say uh, anything other than that. He said there are consequences now. Think about it. So. I've brought them to a point where they can see this would there'd be very few abortions in the world that I ran, so to speak, because if you really were faced to think, you do need to look at the, at the picture of your baby in utero. You do need to think about the fact that this is a human life because you're going to think it later. And it may be that you decide, I'll go through with it. The ba- there are lots of people wanting to adopt these babies. You don't need to carry the guilt of having killed your own baby for the rest of your life. And then there are these lovely stories of people finding their aborted, their not aborted, their children given up for adoption years later, and it's always a wonderful experience. Um, properly educating works, a, a lovely uh, account, a true one, of a, a prof who taught embryology and did the same lecture every year with models of the babies um, and after one such lecture a, a young woman came to his room and said uh, I, I want to thank you and she said what for he said well my mother heard that lecture from you and she had an abortion book and she didn't have the abortion and it's me how would you respond to that? But that's the reality. Sure, this is an incredibly emotionally charged subject. Uh, but because it, it's at the heart of what it means to be a human being. So I say I can say to you, look, I haven't denied any of the consequences. If we took over, there probably would be some people who would end up doing silly things, if, if, if we were harsh about it, certainly. I said, Jamaica is an interesting place where I go quite often there. They understand that the law should teach. And so they say they, they have, uh, they still have a law against homosexuality and they have a law against abortion, but they do abortions. They do more abortions on a population base than Canada does. They say, we know it's wrong, but we want it. But we don't want to pretend that it isn't wrong. That's, that makes you a much healthier society. We're all sinners. We all do things that we know we shouldn't. Uh, there are no degrees of sin in heaven. There are degrees of sins here because they have consequences here. Uh, but Jesus makes it very clear in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you're angry with your brother, you're on the way to hell fire. Whereas if you murder your brother, you're going to get judged. <laughs> Which do you want? Hell fire as an inevitable outcome or judgment? No. Well, you choose the judgment every time. Why does Christ make being angry with your brother worse than killing someone? Well, most murders are passionate moments of passion. Uh, they scar lifetimes, but there's not an intrinsic, usually except for professional killers, uh, uh, an inbuilt desire to do that because it's usually your spouse. I mean, the only person ever likely to murder me is my wife, and she has. I give her plenty of reason to want to do it on occasions, and she can be hot-tempered, you know. Fortunately, she's never had, you know, an appropriate implement in her hand at the time. She might have done it. Now, she'd have to go to prison because it, we can't allow murder to go without consequence, but she'd be, no, she'd be running the prison in about 10 minutes, you know, that's the way it would be. Uh, Jesus makes that clear. 
God looks at our hearts, our intent. He doesn't look at our wonderful rational activity and all that. No, no. He never bothers to describe what justice is. He gives us what we can't do and says, no, get on with it. And if you keep these negative rules, your life will go well. And if you don't, it won't. And of course, for me, one of the most frightening verses in the Bible uh, with respect to abortion is in Ezekiel. I've forgotten the, the verse now. It's about 30. It's about halfway through. But Jesus, through Ezekiel, God through Ezekiel, he's talking to the children of Israel, saying, you're not keeping my Sabbath. It's, it's, a, it's a discussion about the way they're profaning the Sabbath and having sex and everything else in with prostitutes. And he says, I have given you laws by which you cannot live. Meaning, I've allowed you to have laws by which you cannot live. The law that society accepts. He says, I've even allowed you to go to the point where you're giving your children to Moloch. He doesn't put it that way. He says, you offer your children. I've done it to horrify you that you might repent and come back to me. Abortion is down the road on that of God trying to get you to see the truth. And we need to talk about it in that way. Any woman who's, I regret my abortion, abortion movement, doesn't get much publicity, but the, the people doing, my goodness, they've got moral courage, haven't they? I regret my abortion standing outside the Supreme Court and the like. Yeah. So, what hasn't been discussed? Everybody knows about backstreet abortions and coat hangers and all the rest. So the, the, the drawbacks to the pro-life argument have been widely debated. This is the next bit that, that's hardly been debated at all because there are consequences. Now I've laid out the first one. The, the pulling apart of being and person, human being and human person, was stupid. It's not rationally defensible. There are categories that are worth splitting for understanding, if you like, but they're not splittable in human life terms. And they do lead all the way up to, to partial birth abortion. That's how passionate they can become about this. Uh, they certainly turn their minds off. I mean, you can't think of anything more gruesome than a partial birth abortion. Uh, it allows infanticide. Nothing ever happens at that level. In Britain, a woman isn't responsible if she kills her baby for a year after the pregnancy, and that's because they argue it must all be depression. In other words, they don't want to argue it's not wrong. They want to argue that uh, she was not in control of her mind at the time. British hypocrisy, that's what we do all the while. Um, it has got to the killing of the handicapped. It's got to the killing of the elderly. And now I've had emails from young doctors starting palliative care who've been told by their colleagues who are killing patients legally that you are wasting money. Get out of here, let us kill them. Go back to being a family practitioner. But dying is important. We only die once and we die not for ourselves. Ask not for whom the bell tolls because it tolls for thee. Um, dying well is a moment when our families can do well or do badly. It's a moment of truth. It's a moment when the gospel shows. Uh, so we don't we don't want to truncate it. We want to make it good. A good death is important for everybody's health. We're going to see huge problems from COVID for people who didn't have good deaths. They were stopped by utilitarian reductionistic epidemiologists and all their acolytes who should actually be sued. 
uh, all across the country, suicide rates are going up, drug usage rates are going up. Uh, they're, they're, COVID is another factor making that worse. We've lost our humanity, our capacity to uh, deal with the big questions. John Wesley would say to people who said, you make, you turn people emotionally into Christians. And he wouldn't argue with them because it is emotional, it should be. Uh, he'd say, come and watch our people die. Dying is so different when Christ is involved. And we're trying, to, we're trying to pretend that there isn't so. The last act of outrage for somebody who uh, is a rational atheist is to plan their own death. That's been around forever, you know. I forget, was it Dionysus or one? Anyway, one of the contemporaries of uh, Socrates invited all his friends and uh, got in a hot bath and got drunk and died uh, with his friends there to encourage him. Uh, that's at least got some dignity to it at one level, but the Christian's quite different. Martyrdom in the first centuries is what killed the opposition. They could not understand the promise that Jesus made. They will throw you out, they will kill you, but don't worry about it. I will be present. I mean, there is a sense in which the road to the cross was a triumphal march. Paul says he led captivity captive. He was like a, a Roman general who's won a huge victory coming back to Rome, but what he took back as his conquest was death. He said, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. He didn't want people to weep for him for dying because he knew what was being accomplished. And the martyrs, I mean, the famous martyr by Bloody Mary of uh, of uh, Ridley and, and uh, oh, I've forgotten the name of the other guy in High Street at, at uh, uh, Oxford and the one bishop says to the other as they light the fire play the man Master Ridley I trust that this day we will light a flame that will never go out in England they died courageously they were not screaming with pain which is normal Stephen is the model they were throwing stones at him and hitting him on the head and everywhere else. And what's he doing? He was looking at the vision of heaven. Uh, when we sanitize death, it's, it is not meant to be like this. It's the ultimate outcome of sin. We need to see it that way. Thank you, John. And thank you for listening today. That was very, very helpful. Listen in next week as we talk about the consequences of abortion.